This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Milo Medin. Milo Medin has been part of the internet community for almost 40 years. He recently left Google after 11 years, where he oversaw a number of projects to improve the access to the internet, building both fiber and wireless networks, and in shaping the spectrum policy and products. Milo holds several patents in the field of network access technology and sat on the FCC's Technical Advisory Committee and the Broadband Development Advisory Committee. From 2016 to 2022, he served on the Defense Innovation Board, which is chartered to provide recommendations to the Secretary of Defense to drive more innovative innovation and agility in the Department of Defense to achieve its missions. So first off, Milo, welcome to Legions and Legend, and thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. And I just want to correct you. I think my last day on the Dib was November of 21-ish, something like that. That's when all the... Remember, um, administration change and the Biden guys got rid of all the uh, all of the uh, advisory boards. Everything's gotten rebooted. Rebooted. Well, a, a new 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 era. Let's start by talking about, you know, your leadership style. And uh, can you describe your leadership style a little bit? You know, it's it's always hard to do that yourself. The the better fidelity reviews come from your people. Um, I think. For me, I sort of my personality type is ENTJ. So uh, I have no trouble sort of taking command in a crisis. Crisis Crises don't bother me that much. In in some ways, uh, it helps force decision making um, that sometimes can be um, that that if things are good, you don't have to make hard, sort of hard decisions. I think the the challenge um, it, that I've had is sometimes is how to um, try and and really develop people and encourage them to uh, grow. And that's actually been some of my most uh, most uh, you know enjoyable times as a leader. Uh, having someone uh, decide that they want to grow as a leader and then mentoring and then guiding them. There was one engineer I remember at Google, uh, and he uh, he said he really wanted to lead a team and become a, um, a manager. And I said to him, you know, I'll work with you on this, but your performance scores are going to drop because there's no way you're going to be as good a manager as you are an engineer. And he really felt like he wanted to do that. And and at the end, he wound up getting promoted to a director at Google, which is a very difficult thing to to have happen. Um, and um, and that was that was really great. And there was a number of cases like that where um, you know investing in people and in leadership um watching them grow and develop not just as good engineers but as good people uh managers and and watching them grow their people 
that gives me a, a ton of satisfaction in addition to doing fun technical things. So you brought up EMTJ uh, before. Can you describe what that is? And uh, well, I know having worked at Google, there's a process where you said the best fidelity or best information you can get about your, your leadership style is, is from feedback. And so can you talk about that process and, and what that meant? Yeah, it's Myers-Briggs, which means um, E for extrovert uh, and for intuitive as opposed to sensors, right? Uh, and a uh, T is a, a thinker rather than a feeler, and J is judgmental, like you like structure, you like clarity, um, as opposed to sort of uh, ambiguity. Um, I think one of the key, key um, things that uh, that pers my personality type is, it's easier for me to make decisions. Um, Colin Powell, I was at a Planner Perkins event once and Colin Powell was giving a talk and he said, all good decisions are made between 30% and 70% of total information. If you don't have 30%, you don't know what the hell is going on. If you have more than 70%, you've waited too long. And that struck me as a really important point that we some so often uh, neglect the value of time in our calculations of how we make decisions. And so that is one of the things I think is um, that I've learned that um, try and don't don't put off making hard decisions. Things almost never get better when you when you put them off. So can you, is that one of the definitions that you would use to define a great leader or, or um, are there other traits that you think great leaders um, possess that you would want to see in somebody that you work with or was your leader? Yeah, it would be decisiveness. I think, I think it's really important to have clarity in the organization about what you're trying to do, how you're trying to do it and your, the progress that you make along that path. And that also means that if something isn't working, you're going to go take action to deal with it one way or, or, the, or the other. Um, and I think that's, a, that's an important thing and encouraging the people to do that, particularly in engineering management. Um, I would say this is anecdotal, but there are more, sort of uh, um, introverted, more conflict avoidant people in the technical spaces sometimes than in others. And, uh, and sometimes it's harder to get people to step up and make a, make a personnel decision um, that might be hard for them or have a harder conversation. But I always tell folks, you're not doing someone a favor by leaving them in a place where they're not being successful or productive. Um, it, it, it is, we only have so many years on the earth and to have someone be left in a place where they're not being able to operate at their best potential because of a skill mismatch or whatever reason, um, you're cheating them of time. You're cheating them out of parts of their life where they could be in a better place doing something where they could be more successful. So part of that about 
being making decisions and performance management, you know, that's something I've learned over the years that um, I used to think it was it was um, harsh to go move someone out when they were not having when they were not being successful. But over the years, I've I've really learned that, that, that you're not doing them a favor. You're doing yourself a favor by avoiding having a, a tough conversation. And um, so you you owe it to to your team, um, not just to the other members of the team who might be being slowed down by having a problem um, in your in your org, but but you owe it to that person because God made them. Uh, to be successful in something. And if they're not being successful in your team, um, that means they're they're missing out on whatever they were meant for. So you worked at a very innovative company, Google, um, for 11 years, that's a long time, and, and broke through a lot of very interesting uh, areas, especially in the area of communications. So tell me what uh, and tell me about an accomplishment you were most proud of as a leader uh, that really shaped your career. Oh, you know, I think um, it could be um, my time at at home where we work with the cable operators to deploy broadband. Uh, it, it's funny at this point in time, but I remember debating people from the telcos about DSL versus cable modem technology. And, uh, you know, physics physics really matters, right? The, the, the spectrum that you have in the cable system versus on a twisted pair is greatly different. And one of the logic, one of the, the arguments that was made is, well, people don't need that much bandwidth. Like we were, on dial-up modems, if you remember many years ago, and, and you might be getting 50 kilobits or something, and the phone companies had ISDN, which was supposed to be 64 kilobit or, or, or 128 kilobit, and we were pushing cable modem technology that was going to be 10 megabits, right? Like 100 times faster. And, um, and part of the logic that people had about why that didn't matter was, well, there's, people didn't need that much capacity. And, uh, and that's an argument that people sometimes still make, like, why, why do you need a gigabit or, or why do you need more than that? And, uh, and, and bandwidth will find a use if you, if you, uh, if you can deliver a lot of it. The thing that was really the, the big insight was people wanted a high peak to average ratio. It wasn't that they were going to use a hundred times the amount of traffic that a dial-up user would use, at least in those early days. But it was the fact that when you wanted the capacity, it was there for you and you could complete it, complete what you were doing and be done. It was a time machine. It gave you time back. Um, and that was uh, that's something that I was very proud of. And in fact, Doxis, the standard we helped um, put together, there was an IEEE standard that was based on ATM technology. We killed it and we moved ahead with what eventually became DOCSIS, which was a, a, an IP-driven uh, strategy. Uh, and that's still in use today. In fact, DOCSIS 4, the fourth major revision of DOCSIS is 
being rolled out by the Campbell operators to deliver sort of fiber-like speeds. Um, that's cool. And then what we did at, at Google in the fiber program uh, with the initial deployment in Kansas City and then Austin and other cities, um, delivering a competitive uh, service that changed the bar from sort of 10 megabits where it was sort of the baseline, right? Because why should cable go faster if there's no competitor that's pushing it? Uh, and and resetting the bar to uh, for fixed wire for fixed broadband in the U.S. at least to to a gigabit uh, and and beyond. And so both of those things uh, I, I look on and and am I'm very proud of. And for the team, because in all both of those uh, endeavors, there were team members who were pushing the limits on on the sort of modem technology or optics or on the compute services that that were used to deliver that. Um, and uh, I, I, have, I have many, many good friends from from both of those uh, 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 journeys uh, where we all grew together. I'm speaking with Milo Medin, and after the break, we'll be discussing leading innovation in the federal government today. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Milo Medin. Milo, you were a member of the DIB, or the Defense Innovation Board. Tell us about that and why it was started. Uh, the the DIB was a new advisory group to the SecDef that uh, was started by Ash Carter. Ash asked Eric Schmidt at Google um, to lead a new advisory board trying to be focused on innovation. Um, and it joined the Defense Business Board, the Defense Science Board, and, and others. And I was I got to be one of the sort of initial uh, members of that team. Uh, and it, it was an amazing experience. So, well, what success um, while you were at the DIB were you most proud of? and Or what did you not succeed at that maybe you wish you could redo? Oh, interesting question. So I think, um, personally, um, Gilman Louie and I were the sort of major drivers behind the um, 5G report, which came about from Jim Mattis asking us um, about what its impact would be on the Department of Defense. And I think he was looking at a fundamental problem. He saw where telecom technology was going in general, not just 5G, but sort of where wireless technology was going. And given the dominance of Chinese suppliers in that space, would that mean that either DOD would be unable to lever those technologies to accomplish its mission, putting it at a disadvantage, or it would it would use them but couldn't actually trust it because of supply chain issues um, that the commercial sector had with with many vendors and 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 systems. And so the the report was really focused on that, trying to answer that question for DoD. But it got into a, a, a whole set of other uh, points about the sort of the nature of the competition between China 
and uh, and the U.S. and, and the West uh, in these sort of new wireless technologies. But we also did a bunch of work on software acquisition practices, which I think um, some of which is is making progress. I think um, also the work we've done on AI ethics, uh, which probably may be the longest term impact of the of the DIB uh, in terms of which the DOD basically adopted them more or less uh, a whole. Uh, as its uh, sort of baseline for how to think about AI ethics uh, in its programs and systems. Let's take that apart with two different questions. So the first one is about the innovation, then I'll ask a follow-up question in regards to AI. Um, you know, there's no doubt that the clock speed of innovation and technology advancements continue to just increase and increase. And historically, the U.S. government kind of funded research and development, but today that has changed and commercial um, uh, companies really control their research and development. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's much easier actually for some of our adversaries to get into that OODA loop and get, get that technology. Um, you bring up the procurement and contracting. Um, it, it really hasn't changed enough to really take a, advantage of, of or, or really get into that uh, advantage of what's going on. Do you think this is a challenge for national security today and in this current climate where, you know, the world has got problems all over the place? Uh, I completely agree with your assessment about the clock rate thing. That That is a big issue. When the government funded the R&D in the space, it controlled the, the diffusion rate of that technology out. When the private sector is funding that uh, innovation and integration, uh, the government doesn't control the diffusion of that technology. Uh, it controls how quickly that technology can be integrated in its own systems, but not the core rate of technology innovation. Um, and or certainly now, both in communications and in computing, the private sector is driving the innovation uh, cycles, and they are increasing in terms of speed and complexity, by the way. As Moore's law has sort of fundamentally flamed out, all real sort of significant performance improvements come through specialization, and specialization requires software le uh, leveraging that specialization. So in some ways, it's easier for the government to move from a hardware perspective, like I'm just going to take this system and, and move it to a next-gen processor or virtualize it. But to take advantage of specialization, particularly in things like AI, um, you have to change the software infrastructure. And that is something that the government has a hard time sort of navigating. Um, and that's, gonna, that, that's one of the, the problems. On the acquisition side, I would just say, when I worked for NASA, um, uh, I was in my 20s, and um, and one I didn't have much of a social life. And uh, one weekend, I, I decided that I would read the FAR. And uh, then when I, there's this program we were running, and I, I talked to the contracting people the, the, that next week, and I said, uh, hey, I'd like to run it this way. And they said, well, we don't do it that way. That's, you can't do it that way. I said, well, I, I actually read the FAR. And says here that I have authority to do this. And they looked at it and 
And they said, well, but, but we, we don't, that's not how we do it. And I said, well, if I have authority, I'd like to try that. And they said, uh, well, you're going to get protested. I go, well, we're always going to get protested. And, uh, and so it, it was my first interaction um, with, with folks. They weren't trying to be a problem, but oftentimes what the actual rules say and what, what your practices are, are, are different. I gave a talk at an air warfare conference once and I said, you know, there are two books that everybody believes they know what they say, but they don't actually pick up and read. One of them is the FAR and the other is the Bible. And if you if you actually uh, read them, you'll find many treasures that you that were un unexpected <laughs> inside. Uh, when we were in the Dib, we there was a, a visit to the uh, Air Force Academy. There was a colonel there who 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 said uh, our acquisition system is a self denial of service attack, um, which I thought was was funny. Um, so I think part of the question is what what do the rules actually say, and are you exercising the maximum flexibility that you have? And that's that's a that's a good question, right? Um, and I think that's going to have to change to integrate the technology that the commercial sector is developing faster than our adversaries. So there's so many articles right now about China surpassing the USA technology. I just read an article this past week about how uh, Vladimir Putin is building a huge, um, uh, you know, GPU AI engine. Um, you know, it, it's what are your thoughts about keeping the U.S. competitive in this very scary times where you're really assessing such great vast amount of data to to be able to assess a threat? Well, uh, first off, um, when you think about AI, part of it is what are the models that you're trying to build and how are you training them? Um, the challenge, I think, when you think about training data, the U.S. tech companies have gotten attacked for a variety of reasons uh, in the past, but the fact that U.S. tech companies lead uh, creates a set of data to train on uh, because like YouTube, just think about how much uh, data is there that you could use for voice recognition and training in multiple languages uh, or um, videos that have been or imagery that's posted on on Instagram that you could use to train. Uh, if you just look at the amount of imagery that is uploaded and then analyze for objects and, and searchability that Google Photos has, for example. Uh, and the vault, I mean, it's, it is massive. And it, it sort of dwarfs, in some ways, what DOD actually processes. Um, so uh, 10, you know, I think one of the points we made in the 5G report was 15 years ago, all of the top tech companies, internet companies in the world were American. Now, six out of the 10 are American, the other four are Chinese. It's the, as, as Chinese companies begin to dominate consumer spaces and aggregate information that models can be trained on, that gives them sort of equivalency. 
in ways that the Russians, <laughs> who have virtually no tech industry, uh, can can compete with. Uh, I think China is really the competitive threat there, not so much uh, the Russians. Though, if you build models and they're open sourced and the algorithms are are out there, the Russians can certainly integrate that as as well as anybody else. What do you think is the biggest um, obstacle in technology adoption? To me, it seems to be usually culture. Um, how do you get advice uh, of addressing that cultural change to, especially in the government, to get them to, to see things like large language models as being something that really should be adopted to be able to have another tool in the arsenal to be able to measure threats? You know, it's interesting. Um... One of the things is we visited various DOD installations and and talked to officers and enlisted um, men and women. Uh, the younger the young people coming into the force are digital natives. They have a very different expectation of the use of technology, and I think that's going to shift the culture of what people expect from their systems. And um, the sort of latent uh, utility of technology that younger people who have grown up in the space, that I, people like my age didn't, have not, um, that's going to set a different, it's going to set a very different level of expectation and will push the system. The question will be whether or not those things are resisted and those people get burnt out and leave or embraced uh, and being used to build uh, uh, more creative solutions that lever the technology. But I think, you know, one thing on the abundant, uh, one thing on the acquisition side, I think is really important. Thinking about, do we have processes that are all about managing scarcity or about managing abundance? How do you create abundance with regards to technology because the cost should be falling. Like the team that builds networks at Google has a target every year on unit cost reduction. Like the next set, the next terabit of, of optical network bandwidth going in under C should be X percent cheaper next year than the year before. I think that would be a great thing to step back and say, hey, our technology on a unit cost basis of compute, storage, network transport, these things should be getting cheaper at certain rates. And we should be holding vendors and acquisition systems um, accountable for declining costs of compute, declining costs of network, declining costs of storage. And if we're not seeing those, um, those reductions, then, um, then there's something wrong, right? Because that's what the commercial sector is. Seeing. And so I think that's um, trying to think about unit cost and declining unit cost to create an environment of abundance for these resources in the government is going to be really important. Because if you don't have access to compute network and storage at a better and better cost structure, you're not going to be able to lever the solutions that the private sector is building because they depend on those reductions. 
I'm speaking with Milo Medin. After the break, we'll discuss being a leader in building a career in technology and also leadership in a high-tech, innovative company. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Lee Black, and today I'm talking with Milo Medin. Milo, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the change in the technology and the cost structures, but with all that is happening in the world with the political divide to a tough economic climate or what is happening in Ukraine or Israel, it's, let's face it, it's pretty turbulent times and a tough time to start a business. What advice would you have to offer industry executives as they navigate this new climate and changes they bring? Uh, I think the question is really about um, it, as, as things change, as the velocity of change increases, you are going to have to be more agile in being able to come up with new approaches, things that worked for the conflict in uh, the Middle East before are different when you're dealing with near peers. Um, and thinking about systems that have 20-year lifetimes, uh, that's that's a challenge. So one of the one of the questions I would use to pose people is pretend it's 2005 and you are the folks at BlackBerry. Design me a phone that you're going to ship in uh, 2025. Look, you would just like laugh, right? That's not possible. You would, if you designed a phone in 20, let's just like in 20, in 2005, that you were going to ship in 2025, the, the, the software, the processors, the but none of that would be the same you know it's all going to be completely different so why in the world would you run a program with a 20-year development and acquisition time mm -hmm. like you know everything's going to be the pace of technology is going to be radically different and by the way not just i think in computers and the electrical systems the tech the the sort of computing things but in material science, because I think you're going to see AI drive all sorts of new innovations in material science, in, um, in systems, and in um, real sort of physical systems that, um, um, that would, would have taken much longer. And so I think then the question is really about how can I make decisions for systems in shorter time increments so that I can adapt those to a changing environment. Because I think the idea that you're going to have one system that's going to do everything and you make one of those every 20 years or 30 years, I think that is is very ill-suited for the future that we are we are facing. When it comes to leaders at large innovative companies like Google, you know, trying to turn it around, what is their biggest challenge on leadership? We talked a little bit about, you know, maybe a startup, but what about large companies where, you know, you have a, uh, you know, such a large culture, a lot of different things already in place. How do you drive that leadership and innovation to try something new? 
Uh, I think the biggest challenge as organizations grow large is maintaining the, the pace of decision making. When a, and when a team is small or a company is small and its product set is relatively narrow uh, and everybody is focused on a particular set of objectives, it's, it's a lot easier to make a decision. When you get big and you've got conflicting priorities con and resources that are not you have to make you have to make calls. Delaying making those decisions puts all of the organization at risk. And so part of that is goes back to how can you in, get clarity in decision making? How can you understand what your decisions are? As I think Jeff Bezos had this this um, this approach of. There are doors that are one-way doors and there are two-way doors. Making a decision that you can reverse, well, you should be able to make that decision faster than a decision that you, when you go through that door, you can't go back, right? So thinking about decisions in that kind of space, thinking about um, how do I get enough information to make the decision without waiting too long. Those are real challenges in large organizations where you're dealing with fundamental trade-offs. So, you, you know, Milo, I would describe you as a person with a strong north. You, you have a strong sense of who you are and, and what you want to be. Um, over the course of your career, were there obstacles or challenges that you encountered on a personal level that you had to overcome in order to become an effective leader? Uh, and or for your team to achieve success? You know, uh, we don't talk about this much in, in, in Silicon Valley, but this concept of fear, right? How do you make a potentially risky decision? Um, I think it's really important that your identity is not completely wrapped up in your job. Um, whether it's, uh, faith or family, having a center that is of your ego or of yourself that is not centered in your job is really, I have found to be really important. Because if making a tough call, making a risky bet means your identity is at risk, you're going to it's it's really easy to choke. It's really easy to delay. It's really easy to do things that may, may not be um, actually in the best interest of the of the company or the team. Um, to know that um, if you fail, um, that's not the end of the world. Um, that gives you a ability to be dynamic and to be bold in how we both cast vision and make tough calls. Um, I don't think it's possible to do that without having your center be somewhere that is not in your job. And I do also think that establishing a rhythm, making sure you have time for family, that you're not consumed with the job, helps you make decisions with better perspective. And I think that's really important for sustained achievement. Um, there was a time when I was very, very focused and allowed 
um, my career to be uh, very consuming. And um, those times uh, I made worse decisions than when I had uh, not allowed the job to become uh, completely all-consumed. I'm speaking with Milo Medin, and after the break, Milo will share his advice for the next generation for leaders. You're listening to Leaders and Gen Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Milo Medin. Now, Milo, we, let's take a step back. Let's talk about your career path, maybe even your first job, and, and a little bit how you you got to where you are today. Can you can you Tell us about your career path and, and yeah, how. Sure. So um, uh, I was uh, rejected by Stanford University, but accepted by UC Berkeley, majored in computer science there. And I worked part time at Livermore Lab when I was at Cal. And that was a lot of fun. It gave me exposure to things that were really, um, really mind-blowing in terms of the technology, what people were working on, I got to work on um, on uh, nuclear weapons, um, which I always joke around, it helps, it helps you prepare you to compete with incumbents. Um, but I think that it, uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to think about the world in a, in a different way. Um, and then I wound up at NASA uh, first as a contractor and then government. And that was my sort of first full-time job. And one of the things that I enjoyed there was I didn't expect it to be my permanent job, like what I would do for the rest of my life. And so that allowed me to do things that might have been, maybe people might have thought would be career, maybe not advancing. Right, I could be a very controversial person, um, and but I got a lot of things accomplished in a really quick time frame because I knew I wasn't going to be there forever, uh, and uh, it was a great experience for me. Uh, that's you know dealing with the uh, acquisition folks, working intergovernment agencies between um, with NASA and uh, Energy and the National Science Foundation, the Department of Defense, uh, in the early days of the internet, where we got to, you know, build the routing protocols that the internet uses today and extend connectivity across the world. And uh, uh, and I would just say that the the thing there that I would have people don't think about your first job in government as your permanent job. Think of it as something where you can learn a ton from people um, and push the limits uh, because many times people will get out of your way. They'll just let you try and screw up. But if you if you take that freedom and deliver, you can get a lot of amazing things accomplished. And that's really um, a great opportunity, I think, because you know, if you particularly the Department of Defense or the IC. That you have different problems than what like an engineer at Google is dealing with or an engineer at Facebook. And so you have unique problems that can be very attractive to young engineers. Plus the mission, right? The outcome of, of making a difference in the world. Yeah, I think I think 
you know, as I said, um, thinking about finding your calling, what you have been made for, uh, you'll always do better doing what um, uh, excites you, doing what enables you to grow, uh, where um, I think that's finding your spot. Uh, and if you're an engineer, that can be used in, you, you can work in so many different spaces and uh, working in just one aspect of technology, I think is not as much fun. I've always enjoyed systems, uh, taking stuff I've learned from one domain and applying it to another. And I would really encourage um, folks in the government to, to look at that approach. You have got a great opportunity to move from different eight, from between different agencies or different roles. Um, look for, always be looking for where you can learn. If you're not learning, if you're not, um, looking at new problems, um, and growing in that way, then you probably need to find a different place because, um, you're not going to maximize your potential that way. What do you think is the hottest careers in the future? You, you know, coming from Google and some of the technology companies, I know you advise, where do you think the hottest careers are for that next generation coming up in the next decade? Well, I think technology is going to be obviously one of the, the really interesting uh, spaces will continue to be an area where the dynamicism of, of, and, and, and change is going to be uh, strong. I think it's really interesting, you know, these large language models for AI are opening up AI to um, whole new sectors of people. You know, we had AI before. Um, in, um, in, and you just had to be a TensorFlow engineer or a PyTorch programmer, et cetera, to, to use them. Now sort of normal people can use it. Uh, it's like, uh, back in the old days, you know, I built internet networks and systems before the browser, before Mosaic came out, before there was Netscape. And, um, when that, when the browser came into being, the total addressable market of internet users was multiplied by a factor of like 100,000. ChatGPT, BARD, et cetera, are that moment for AI. And so now non-programmers can use AI technology to accomplish things. There's a Harvard Business School professor, Kareem Lakshmi, I think, said AI won't replace jobs but humans with AI will replace humans without AI. And so I think now there's the opportunity to lever uh, uh, AI technology uh, and all, enable all sorts of people to be able to do things that they couldn't do before without it and enter careers and be able to contribute in ways that um, only specialized knowledge uh, engineers uh, could have done before. So it's a great equalizer, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity uh, for people to lever that technology. You've given some incredible advice throughout the show today, but um, if you were to go back in time, um, Milo, and you'd wish somebody whispered in your ear when you were 21, what would you, advice would you would give or would like to have received 
um, when you were just starting out? Um, I, I, I think the best advice I would have gotten would be um, really focus on how on team culture and uh, how you lead because uh, you're sending signals all the time. You may not think you're sending signals, but but you are. Uh, and I think, you know, one of one piece of advice I got was change your org structure around periodically for no good reason. Because one of the things that that happens is people get too attached to a particular role and you can get politics and siloing and stuff like that happens. If you move people around, you'll get cross-training and cross-discipline. People will understand each other's problems and opportunities um, in, in different parts of, it, or of the organization. Um, you can't do that all the time uh, for, for obvious reasons, uh, but be, be more thoughtful about who is in what role and um and and not keeping organizational structure static i think that would that would have been a piece of advice i got that piece of advice later on and it was a it was a good thing um but i would have liked having that early on certainly as a manager and then as a as a as an individual contributor i would just say always be pursuing a role where be where you can be curious, where you can learn and uh, and grow. Don't ever um, be in a limited place where you can't ask questions, you can't be, um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about how to solve uh, different problems. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Milo Medin. Milo, let me first, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing some of your personal journey and some very valuable advice. You're welcome. And it's been a ton of fun and a great chance to uh, catch up with you again, Aileen. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One.